inconceivable. You give you send a horse. I do not think it means what you think it means. We're live. All right. Um, that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. Um, we are the co-authors, um, Shimon and Matthew, and we wrote this book hoping that people will understand that the words they're arguing about don't always mean what they think they mean. Um, so today we wanted to discuss uh, a word that gets thrown around an awful lot, and most of us assume we know what it means, but uh, the devil's in the details, and it's also a partisan issue, and that is immigration. So um, I wanted to start there. Um, Shimon um, and I both uh, uh, saw an interview with a North Korean escapee who uh, went through tremendous hellish things, both in North Korea growing up and then escaping into China, Mongolia, South Korea, and then eventually made her way to America. So that that sort of sparked a set of uh, thoughts and potentially an interesting conversation uh, that affects all of us. All right. Well, immigration would seem like a pretty straightforward word. I mean, it's the act of moving from one place to another, right? It is, um, but I think that it, implicit in it is a lot of assumptions we have about the existence of things like states, the existence of things like borders, passports, rights, the right of any person to travel or of any other country to keep someone from traveling into their country. Uh, what happens to you once you get into a country? Um, some of these are actually pretty new concepts and they actually do get reinvented every day um, up until uh, roughly a hundred years ago, basically World War One, there, there really was almost no such thing as borders in the South that we understand them today. Um, the edges of empires were often very fuzzy. Um, the other things besides empires were no, nowhere near as developed as we are today. I mean, there were certainly governments that tried to do things like collect taxes, but it wasn't like every single inch of everywhere was defined. And um, people could pretty much go wherever they wanted. Um, at least as far as having to uh, having to have a passport. I don't think that most humans had passports, uh, even in Europe, until World War I. So um, there's a bunch of assumptions sort of hidden in there. When we say that you know our ancestors immigrated to America in 1881 or 1905 or 1620, we're not talking about like arriving and you know having our passport stamped. Um, you know, people showed up somewhere and and then just found a place to live and live there and figured out a way to make money or, or farm the land or conquer or, or be, be a bandit or whatever. There wasn't such a thing as having papers. So I wanted to just you know pull apart some of those assumptions that we have about what it means today. Okay. So um, tell me what your thoughts are then. Well, I mean, I, like I struggle to try go back for a second historical, maybe this takes down a rabbit hole, but I don't think so. Like there still was a process. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a very big student of this particular piece of history, but there still was a pro like there, you showed up at, what did Ellis Island open? Like you, you had to show up at a quote border and get in, gain entry. You didn't, maybe didn't have papers or a passport, but like, 
I know, I know, I know that, that that was a thing. I'm not sure when. But I, think it was, I think it predated World War One by a fair amount. That's true. It did. Um, but it wasn't as formalized. Like, you didn't get in trouble for not having a uh, passport. Um, there was pretty much free immigration for most countries, and they, they really only started to formalize it because there were these huge waves from countries that they were considering not letting people in, um, like Chinese people, Jews, Greeks, Slavs, Italians. Um, when they were letting Irish in the first half of the 20th century, it was just like you got on a boat, you landed in America, and somebody picked you up and you know brought you to the Irish neighborhood, and there wasn't any any passport stamping or anything like that. So, so these things were, were um, a lot fuzzier than they used to be. And I think what the reason it came up in my mind so strongly was hearing about this poor North Korean woman's horrific difficulties was, for one thing, she wasn't allowed to leave North Korea. North Korea is a country that doesn't allow its people to leave. Um, and they had to be smuggled out which was an incredible nightmare and terribly exploitative. And when they got smuggled out of North Korea, it turned out they actually were smuggled out not into freedom in China, but rather into a, uh, a slave network, a trafficking network. And uh, young women, both her and her mother, were basically sold into um, to be wives of poor Chinese farmers who can't afford a, a wife or there's a shortage of women. So the level of vulnerability that you have crossing from one country into another country uh, when it's not free uh, is, is, is terrible. And then when she escaped from China, from that whole slavery situation, she escaped into uh, Mongolia and they, they didn't want to let her in. It was a whole terrible, difficult thing. And she had to apply for refugee status and eventually got, got refugee status as a defector, basically. And then wound up in South Korea being kind of uh, re-educated and absorbed into South Korean society. Um, since she at least spoke the language and stuff, and then she was able to find her way to something much more successful. But it just, I don't know, it just struck me as just so many things about her life and the horrors that happened to her happened because of the fact of national borders. Because of the fact I, of immigration I, I, not I, being unlimited. I don't know that that I, I actually I disagree with that. Um, I think the things that happened to her happened to her because she happened to have the misfortune of being born into a tyrannical regime, and then the rest of it has to do with being places that are not free. Um, and I'm not sure the actual quote immigration piece of it is that is that important. Man, look, her story is 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 fairly incredible. And I mean, just to kind of go down a little bit on on her story and a little bit, I guess, away from immigration as we typically come to perceive it. But I mean, like it, it was just kind of extremely Orwellian in nature. It's a it's a firsthand account of what goes on in North Korea. Mind you, it's a little bit dated because she left North Korea like 15 years ago or so. Um, but what it was like as a child in North Korea and how the process of leaving North Korea and then the human trafficking trade in China. And these are things you don't, you don't hear about every day. And yeah, maybe the lack of, or, of a formal border situation kind of impacted that. But I think the real impact was just the fact that like, like, like 
North Korea is just a tyrannical place and completely unfree, um, con- completely controlled place. And I, what I found extremely interesting in listening to that, into the, that interview, which I posted a link to in the comments, was actually like her frequent references to uh, to Orwell. Because I'm listening to this going, wow, this is Orwellian. She's like, and then I was in South Korea and I discovered the book Animal Farm. And then I read 1984 and I was like, oh, I lived through this, basically is what she said. And then what I found most interesting of all, actually, was her tales of what happened to her at Columbia University, like in America, where she like to me, that was the most cautionary piece of the whole tale is here's a woman who literally survived South Korea, human trafficking, rape. And then she ends up in America in the freest country on earth at Columbia University. And she felt like she's like, wow, you guys are we're literally going down the road towards where I just came from. And it's really sad and terrifying and that that's what struck me more than anything about this woman and her her story the woman's name by the way is yon me park i probably pronounced that wrong you can look her up she wrote a book although yeah. she didn't write it about the columbia piece and i posted the link to the interview that matthew and i had independently found um so i mean to me that was the interesting piece um and less so about immigration but I, i'm happy to hear your thoughts on it i was struck by a couple pieces of the her story. You're right. I guess they weren't that central. But the the things that struck me, <coughs> excuse me, specifically in her experiences of crossing the borders, it brought up some really good reasons why someone should be able to cross a border, and also why they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Like Mongolia was extremely concerned that anyone coming from North Korea was actually a North Korean spy. Now, that's, I think most people would agree that's a valid concern. Apparently, North Korea does have people go out of its country pretending to be defectors who are, in fact, spies. And North Korea has, let's just say, not very friendly relationships with most other countries. So it would seem like likely that not only are there spies, but those spies genuinely pose a danger to North Korea's neighbors. So... So, you know, it, it means to the extent that a nation state exists that it wants to protect itself from the spies of other people's nation states. Um, you know, on the other hand, um, making it difficult to cross the border um, uh, made it far more likely that people like her would be vulnerable to these terrible smugglers and human trafficking. So, I mean, both of those issues, I think, come up on America's borders, America's southern border, which is always a back and forth football issue. Um, you know, the vast majority of people coming into America illegally are um, are economic migrants from uh, Central and South America. Um, unless I'm wrong, but I'm fairly certain that's the vast majority of illegal immigrants to America. Um, as far as I know. There are also, yeah, there, there also are immigrants from the rest of the world, especially places like the Philippines and China and India, who come and then overstay their visas. So they're technically also illegal immigrants, even though they're not, they didn't sneak in in the same way. Um, a lot of people overstay their visa partly because it's an extremely difficult process. Um, the, uh, but you know, how, how do you balance these things? I guess is part of what I'm thinking. Like, I don't wanna have the entire conversation about whether nation states could, should exist at all. But, you know, there's a part of me that's libertarian that sort of says that if there's free movement of goods 
and there's free movement of capital, there should be free movement of labor also. Otherwise, it's a massive market distortion, full stop. And then that means everything about the free movement of goods and capital leads to potentially terrible outcomes. Um, if we're sort of taking that sort of libertarian market ideal that says that the market will solve these things. Well, if the market can't solve for a shortage of labor because of a border, um, then you're talking about potentially huge exploitation of people in one country or the disappearing of a whole category of jobs in another country. So, you know, how do you balance that against the need to protect your country against actual threats like people who are sneaking in because they're terrorists or spies? Uh, so, in the American context, and I'm, I don't remember who actually said this, um, but that basically you, you, as I see it, you can either have an open border or a welfare state. If you can't have both, was kind of is kind of that, is kind of this idea because those things kind of oppose each other. Like I, I actually agree with you. I think you should have more of a fr free movement of goods, goods, services, and people. Um, but that's you know. In our country, we continuously moving actually closer towards having a more of a welfare state. And if you just if you are giving out all these benefits to people and you're just allowing everybody to come in, then you're just kind of fast tracking yourself towards bankruptcy, essentially. And we go to all the, the biggest socialist welfare states that are typically held up as examples uh, around the world as kind of models of the left to kind of try to emulate for America um, and try to get into those countries and try to try to immigrate to that uh, Sweden, for example, you can't do it unless you like, you know, married a Swede and set up a whole family. And even then I think it's, it's not super simple. Um, and then that makes a lot of sense because like you have a system, it's kind of closed and it, and it works, but if you don't have an open system, then you, I think you're going to, you need to kind of go kind of a slightly different direction. Uh, I think that if, if we, accept the notion that nation states should exist, which I, I do. Um, and besides the fact they just do exist, uh, part of that as having borders and protecting and controlling the flow of goods and services. The biggest problem, one of the, not the biggest, a major problem with our southern border is the, is the drug trade and the traffic of illicit goods and services and human trafficking across that southern border. And so I think the problem in this country more is actually the, there's no there are no honest brokers in the immigration debate. I think that's a that's the mm. bigger issue. Is that I think that there's broad consensus in Amer if you like ask American citizens very simply, like, do you think the United States should have a secure southern border? The answer is yes. Now. That question is never asked because it's always more it's it's more politically expedient to ask a question like do you believe we should have a wall right which is that's a part is that's become a partisan issue right um, do you believe that everybody should have the ability to just waltz into this country most Americans would say no like there needs to be a process um, but immigration is an issue that both of the political parties um, find to rile up their voters. And their bases, and so it works. And so there's zero um, incentive for those powers that be in government to solve the problem. Like, why solve the problem if it's actually driving your electorate? Yeah, it it makes me kind of sad because I know a lot of people affected by this. Um, it, it's really difficult, um, and. and 
the partisan debate seems to have nothing to do with the reality in a certain sense. Like, uh, you know, from what I gather, you know, cages with children started happening under Obama, kept happening under Trump, and are still happening under Biden, you know? and But there were only for, cages for children when it was Trump. Otherwise, they were just contain, they were containing children, you know? Right, right. I mean, and it's literally the same people doing the same exact things in the same facilities and probably treating the people the same way. Um, again, if we're talking in reality, but the media por portrays it in such a partisan way. Um, that, that, like, I don't even know how to talk about it. Um, it, it to people who believe these partisan narratives about it. But I think we really need to have a real conversation about like, hey, you know, there are all these people coming. What do we need to do about it? And I actually, you know, there was a, a partisan hay made because I think Kamala Harris in the first weeks of office was was sent to deal with the immigration or to look at it or whatever. And instead of flying to the border, she flew to Guatemala or something. And I actually thought that was a reasonable thing to do because, you know, nobody winds up at the border because, you know, just because of the border. They, they wind up at the border because of everything that happened on their way there. You know, they, they wind up at the border because life was in one way or another, economically or physically, safety, violence, whatever, not tenable in the place where they were. And Guatemala and, and El Salvador and, and uh, you know, all these places where, where drug and gang violence have devastated their societies or just economic and political violence, like there's guerrillas and, you know, uh, left, right death squads in a bunch of these countries. And you could argue about how much America is actually responsible for that. But nobody's arriving at the border specifically to immigrate illegally um, just for no reason. Like it's inherently a dangerous thing. It's, it's, it puts you at risk of smugglers and, and coyotes and exploitative people and, you know, theoretically getting shot or killed on the way there by either the people who are you know, cartels, like no, nobody's going through that Mexico border region uh, illegally, see, secretly um, as a pleasure cruise. Um, so, so, so what the hell did we do to get into a situation where that's happened? That's kind of what. Well, and the answer to that is we have a porous border. Like if you're just looking at them, like, look, valid. Okay. I, I think we can look at the broader pieces of the causes or what's going on in Central and South America that's causing a lot of people to want to migrate northward and what's going on in America that makes it such a hot destination to come to. And I think we should embrace those those things and really, really look at them deeply. Okay? I think that they're they're indicative, like have the much bigger political implications in our country when you kind of look at why is it that, you know, you know, in inside our country many people, particularly of the left, are so disparaging of, of our country uh, as it is, but yet here are all these people who are literally willing to put their lives at risk to come here, right? And they're not coming because of our wonderful healthcare system that, that the government gives social medicine to everybody, because clearly that's not happening, right? They're coming because America is known as the land of opportunity where you can do anything. And when immigrants get here, they're amazed by that fact. And you've lived in other countries where doing something very simple required numerous crazy bureaucratic steps that just don't exist in America. In America, you, you want to open a business, go right ahead. Nobody's stopping you. 
pay your taxes. The IRS will come after you if you don't pay your taxes. But there's no like you have to go to a government office and apply for a business license and get permission to do this specific thing. It doesn't like it doesn't exist in this country. And to the extent it's becoming more prevalent that those things happen, uh, our country's more resembling the places where people are running away from. And, but that's a much, much broader kind of topic of conversation that's not so much on immigration, but kind of the causes and effects of immigration. Um, but if you want to just if you just look at the United States and what our direct implications are from internally, and it's, it's our border policy. And it's very clear because under President Trump, the flow of immigrants nearly stopped because he made a very clear announcement to everybody south of the border that our border is closed. You want to come in? There's a process. Here's the process. You're welcome to, 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 to try the process, right? Now, he, he did, um, he was perceived as um, limiting the number of people that can come through in that, quote, process, but... Um, I read an article recently that like the number of refugees admitted to America, with the exception of 2020, which was COVID pandemic year, was larger every year of Trump's administration than it was in any year of Obama's administration. So like that, that was the idea. And then Biden all of a sudden shows up on the scene and it's like, oh, the border's open again. Let's just trek northward. And so all of that danger that people are facing along the way and going through all of this uh, that the cost benefit analysis of the person who's in Guatemala shifts when, Oh, when I get to America, they're going to welcome me with open arms and put my kids in a cage. Uh, but, um, but on the other side of it, I'll be in America and I won't be in Guatemala. anymore. You're right. I mean, I think the problem that I think that's part of why I'm so fascinated with the word is that the word is almost meaningless in a context without the problems that are generating this, this flow of people. Like, like th there's no, there's no giant, you know, pressure on, you know, immigration between France and Germany. People kind of go both ways, and it's okay. You can go either way, and you know, there's, there's, there's jobs and culture and interesting things in France, and jobs and culture and interesting things in Germany, and there's no huge positive or negative, you know, pull or push to go either place. You know, you might go there if there's a a better opportunity or an interesting thing, but um, it's a healthy border in a certain sense. Actually, I mean, there's no borders in Europe, basically. There's only no borders because it's healthy. Um, well, that both, when you're both countries are reasonably free social democracies, um, and they have slightly different kind of rules, but largely France is occupied by people who speak French and Germany is occupied by people who speak German and there's not a lot of drive or desire to go one way or the other because there's no major strategic or economic advantage to do so. Right, and neither one of them is unsafe. Um, so, you know... Well, I think I would argue that they're both unsafe. France, I think, more so than Germany, especially for Jews in today's day and age. But yes... Um, in in relative as a result, by the way, of their open border policy under which they took, I think, 2 million migrants from the Middle East. Right. I mean, there is some, some, some street violence against Jews specifically, um, which there has been in America, too, in the last couple of Yeah, but years. hey, that look at, uh, take a look at New York, right? Yes, but, you know, even with that, I wouldn't compare the level of insecurity that Jews face walking around the streets, even in France, I wouldn't compare that with living in the slums of El Salvador that are run by drug gangs. 
um, that there's a level of, of, of baseline physical insecurity in some of those places that have been ripped apart by America's drug war. Um, so, you, you know, America basically not only created massive incentives for a huge, terrible drug trade, illicit drug trade and trafficking and everything, but also, um, you know, exported that insecurity to these other countries. Um, so huge parts of Mexico and El Salvador and, and Venezuela now. Uh, and, in what way did America create that? Um, that might be a topic for another conversation, but the, the, the short version is that, you know, the massive demand for this illegal thing and that this huge amount of money that, that got sent to drug gangs because we keep buying cocaine in America. Because ah, um, we're a free and open consumer society and we like illicit substances. Well, we're free and open, but those are specifically illegal, which massively yes. backed up the prices. Created That's the illicit incentive. Piece, right. Right. So I wouldn't call it free in the sense that if there was no mechanism to enforce it, um, it, it wouldn't have jacked up the price. You know, if you say something is illegal, but you don't enforce it, it doesn't have any market effect. Um, but if you do enforce I mean, it, then it... I think the history of marijuana, specifically in California, would, would completely um, fly in the face of that. Like everything you just said. Like marijuana has been practically legal in California for 20 years at least, possibly 30. Um, and now it's outright legal on the state level, but not the federal level. And the price of marijuana has gone up, not down. Interesting. I mean, in Colombia, when I visited there, cocaine... It doesn't hurt, there's a 20% tax. Right, right. There may be... There may be market-specific reasons why the price of marijuana didn't go down. I would have thought that it would go way down. Um, maybe it's some sort of licensing bottleneck. Um, but I would say that I saw for sure that the cost of cocaine in Colombia, where it was decriminalized, um, went down to $4 a gram, as opposed to $120 to $150 a gram in America, where it's illegal. So Well, it's also a lot closer to the source, right? Like avocados yes, are cheaper in California than they are in New York. I know those aren't comparable substances. But. Yeah, yeah, but 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 four dollars a gram is a lot cheaper. When it was illegal in Colombia, it still cost you know thirty dollars a gram to buy at retail, according to my friends there. And when they decriminalized it, it dropped the price down to four dollars a gram. So mm -hmm. it. it, it moved a lot of the terrible incentives to, to towards crime. Um, but th maybe that's a separate discussion. But but what America also did was, so there's this huge drug gang incentive thing. And then a lot of those drug gangs were people from Mexico and Honduras and Guatemala. And what America would do is if it caught people committing crimes, it would, after putting them through uh, the prison system for a month or a year, they would deport them back to Honduras and whatever, Honduras in particular got really devastated by the sort of massive release of American prisoners into their, their societies. And it just- well, Honduran prisoners that were imprisoned in America. Correct. Okay. So we did export our problems in many ways, but the, the bigger point here I, is that these are all words circling around what we call the problem of immigration is a downstream problem from a lot of other problems. I think that was the point I was getting at.
if we're going to use that word at all, we're going to say, oh, there's an immigration problem. Well, maybe the problem is an immigration problem is drug policy. Maybe the problem is that North Korea is a horrible totalitarian state that's starving its citizens. You know, maybe the problem is that there's a massive shortage of females in China because of their birth control policies. And so now there's this like criminal incentive to traffic women to be the wives of poor men in the countryside. I mean, I, I, I want I want us to have a sort of methodology to think about this where we actually talk about the real problems instead of focusing on how high the wall should be. So, so that's an interesting question. The question effectively is, absent the other, quote, problems that exist south of our border, um, does a country or a nation have an interest or a right to, um, to enforce a border and not allow free flow of people across said border? Yes. Meaning, assuming yeah, yeah, there was no problem, there's no problem. Let's just let's just let's magic wand will away all of the problems that have to do with drug trafficking and human trafficking and all those other things, right? Does the United States of America have an interest and/or a right to control the flow of people across its border? Yes. Um, right. And if the answer to that is unequivocally yes then then the debate is not getting to me when i watch the immigration debate in america i think it's just it's getting clouded by by the lack of honesty of those reporting on it to separate the problems of immigration between legal and illegal right meaning quote republicans are 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 generally thought of as quote anti-immigration right when most Republicans I've spoken to are actually anti-illegal immigration. And if you bother to, but it's much more expedient for certain powers that be to, um, to, to keep that distinction blurry, if that makes sense. Because, because there's really no will to solve the problem. It's just a huge, like, it's a huge voter problem it's a huge issue that just a wedge issue among voters that's really easy to divide people uh, along camps and therefore that shapes policy. Because solving America's illegal immigration problem is actually not that difficult. It just requires, it just requires people to kind of, it re requires people to get together and be honest about it. And that is secure the border by whatever means, okay? And we can discuss means, right? And then create a process for immigration, right? That's more streamlined. And then decide what to do with the people that are already here. Now, if nobody wants to break it up into those steps, right? And it has to go in that order. If, if you are going to say America has a right to control its border, then America should do that. And they haven't done it since God knows when. And that shouldn't be controversial. I agree. Unless you don't believe in nation states or borders or any of that, which we've already established, like that was why my first question was, do, does America have a right and an interest to do so? And if they do, then the first step is, okay, let's secure that border. So it's interesting to me how the partisanship is flipped. And I think that speaks to what you're saying right now. Like up until 10 minutes ago, like 2015, 
The Koch brothers were probably the biggest force for open borders and, and open immigration. Um, so it was a very right-wing thing, very libertarian right-wing thing, but it had a huge voice in the Republican Party that said um, we should, you know, embrace the fact that we have a market that people are attracted to come work in, and we should let people come work in this market. Um, you know, and people would accuse them also ideologically of wanting to do that to drive down wages. And there was a, a grain of truth to that, that, uh, you know, if you've got an endless pool of, of Mexicans and Guatemalans who will work for $10 an hour, and that's less than the $15 an hour that the um, existing natives of America, whether they're black or white or green or yellow or whatever, uh, so it was, it was seen as a left-wing thing to say that you should close the border uh, to protect labor markets. And then Trump came in and flipped it. Um, and, you know, both of those arguments have some validity. And then there's the whole refugee issue. And, and confusing those two, I think, is very dangerous. Um, there's, there's normal immigration of just wanting to be somewhere else for opportunities there or to be close to your family there. And then there's, I need to get the hell out of here because I'm in danger. And that does, you know, arguably change the responsibility of the receiving country. Um, and it's separate moral issue. And um, like when I was in Colombia, in South America, the, the country was in really pretty good shape. They had ended a 50 year civil war and uh, it become dramatically safer. They decriminalized a lot of the drugs so they didn't really have much of a drug war anymore. And at the same time, Venezuela had fallen apart because um, it had its own sort of descent into socialist fascism, stupidity, corruption, and uh, mismanagement um, that made it incredibly impoverished and dangerous. And so for, 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 for most of the time that Colombia had its terrible crisis, Venezuela was actually a fairly stable and prosperous country. Um, up until the 90s, and um, at least relative to other South American countries. It had huge inequality, it still had problems, but it was stable and it was safe. And several million Colombians had taken refuge in Venezuela, either temporarily or for a very long time. And um, so what was happening when I was there was that everything had flipped, and now there was a couple million Venezuelans as many as 5 million Venezuelans have fled to Colombia. And, uh, you know, it's a giant border that's mostly not policed. It has a lot of border that just goes through mountain and jungle regions. and You can just walk across. And there was this weird sort of um, reluctance, or I don't know what the word is, and I really can't speak to it with any authority, but there was a, you know, a recognition of reciprocity of a lot of Colombians that they said, well, you know, my family escaped through Venezuela when it was bad here, so we should try to help the Venezuelans who are now escaping there to come here. So, you know, I certainly can respect that. And then, you know, of course, you can look at this North Koreans escaping, the Syrians escaping. I mean, and we as Jews know how bad things can get when country, when no countries will take us in, when we're in danger of being uh, massacred, we can get massacred. It really did happen. So, you know, I don't, I don't know how those two debates play out, but I certainly know that there should be different words for them than just immigration. Oh, for sure. But once again, 
it's not politically expedient to separate these things out. And both parties are, are, are guilty of this. It's, it's not a one-side issue. And by the way, just to kind of go back a few minutes in conversation, the Koch brothers haven't changed. Like they still no, believe true, what they believed true. before, right? It's the political winds shifted a little bit, um, and both parties of, uh, and I think you know the Democrat Party have recognized that they have a good opportunity at taking a um, at taking a large growing segment of, of voters um, and and um, and capturing them by embracing the open border idea and Republicans um, strengthen their base uh, with this kind of fear mongering about their people coming in are going to steal your jobs and both parties are very happy to use this wedge issue uh, and you know that because otherwise it would be solved because like I said the, the, the border is actually not that complicated like we've kind of set it down. It's like step one, secure the border. Step two, create a process for refugees and immigration, right? which we already have processes for those things. Maybe expand it if you want to, right? But have have a real conversation about that. And then step step three, figure out what to do with the people that are already here that that have kind of dubious or ambiguous status. And we were actually pretty the closest we've ever been to true immigration reform um, in the summer of 2018 when you had a uh, Republican um, president, House, and Senate, and you, and you had the, the group of Republican congressmen who broke from party leadership and said, no, we're going to force, a, we're going to, when the border crisis was, was what it was, when Trump issued an executive order that they have to um, enforce the laws that are on the books was basically what Trump basically said in that executive order, which caused this border crisis, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and the, 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 and I, I, Trump was actually very clear about this at the time. Mind you, he was widely misquoted and castigated in the media, but he was basically saying, look, this is a crisis and I'm going to let this be crisis because in crisis comes from crisis comes solutions. And they were actually pretty close. There were four competing bills I think two from the Democrats, two from the Republicans, and they were going to do kind of like a kind of a winner take all kind of situation. Whatever whoever can gain the most support was the bill that was going to move forward. And I, I mean, we were very close, uh, and the vote. I mean, I had um, met with um, with congressmen who one of the congressmen who was who was actually pushing one of those bills, and there was supposed to be a vote like forty eight hours later, and then um, for whatever reason. Um, Trump caved to the pressure and released the, you know, cha- altered the situation at the border by relaxing the 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 rules that he had put in place, and then the debate went away because it was no longer an acute debate. So I mean that, and, and it was what, close. it was close. We were very close, but it it didn't it didn't end up happening, and. I believe that the reason we don't have immigration solved is because it suits both political parties to not have it solved. And that's sad. Now, like I said, we can have other conversations about the specific problems that cause people to want to migrate from one place to another. Uh, Those are all separate conversations, right? We can talk about drug trafficking. We can talk about 
human trafficking. We could talk about tyrannical regimes. We could talk about the fact that what you went through before about the differences between Colombia and Venezuela, right? How the fact that there was a set of policies that was enacted by the government of Venezuela to try to ad address quote unquote income inequality that led to s millions of their citizens get their life getting so bad under their socialist utopia that they felt a need to go to a place that was literally in the middle of a civil war. Like civil war in Colombia seemed safer than the streets of Venezuela. And the yeah, same thing is playing out today in Chile. That's interesting. I'm working on a business project connected to Chile. And uh, yeah, there's some interesting things going on in Chile, and so a lot of them want to leave. Um, look, I, I don't want to. I don't want to ascribe the collapse in Venezuela just to um, their policies. Meaning, um, you could have a perfect policy, but if it's implemented by nepotistic, corrupt people. It could collapse into this and the problem oh, was the nepotism all policies, policies no no the problem is in the idea that you can you can assure equality of outcome when you go down the road of equality of outcome and that's your goal then you are going to end up in tyranny um, and the, the the nepotism and the corruption is just a kind of a byproduct of that goal I'm not sure I agree, meaning the intention of, of Venezuela might have been initially to turn into Scandinavia and the difference was in the implementation. Le leaving aside whether, look, look, I don't think anyone would say Scandinavia is tyrannies. They might have minor issues, but they're not violent tyrannies. Um, I, I agree with you that there's the potential for a policy in that direction to turn into tyranny, but I don't think it's a given that it will. Um, I think so many things went wrong in Venezuela um, that, that it wasn't just the, the, the government turning into tyranny. It was also it was also the collapse of oil prices and it was also the, the, the nepotism and the corruption. Um, so, you know, I, I, I can't quite agree with you that, that every, every the collapse in oil prices happened in 2014. Up until 2014, uh, oil was north what? north of $100 a barrel. The acute the acute issues of Venezuela started well before that. The net outward migration started well before that. It did, but it got way worse when oil collapsed. So I mean, and no, yeah, actually, well, of course, there, there of because the only thing that the only of course there was mismanagement before that they couldn't pump oil even when it was over $100 a barrel, they couldn't pump oil because they, 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 right, they, they because the oil collapse was the nail in the coffin. They, they took over their, their, their country's oil company with nepotism rather than competent people. I would ascribe that more to stupidity and corruption than I would to socialism. Um, like, there, there are countries that are quite socialist, but that simply hire super competent people to run their oil fields. Um, you, you know, it's, 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 it's not a given that you screw that up. Um, there's so many things that can go wrong. And I, I just, science, so to speak, scientifically, I couldn't isolate one cause of it. I am not endorsing the Venezuelan regime. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> well, I would think if you look at Scandinavia, 
I don't think they hold as a value equality of outcome. Like every time the the American socialist or the South American socialist rise up and say, "Oh, we want to be like we're social. We want to be social like Scandinavia." What does Scandinavia come up to? No, we're not socialist guys. Like like they're constantly out there, kind of decrying the same things. Now, do they have a, a more of a social welfare state? Yes. But they also have the closed border back to the immigration piece of the conversation, right? Like well, try no, to immigrate think, to Sweden. I think, I think they do actually hold it as an ideal equality of outcome. Um, but they're not um and well, there's many parties. They're, they're relatively free countries with lots of different political parties, and some of those parties are are pretty explicit socialist slash communist in a in a way that would be far to the left of AOC. They really do talk about equality of outcome. They really do try to implement policies, but they haven't tried to do it coercively, um, at least in any way that has caused mass disruption. Um, so there's certainly some ideologues in Sweden and, and Norway and uh, Finland and, and uh, Denmark that are, uh, you know, quite the terror to a uh, to a freedom loving American. Um, but they didn't manage to destroy their countries. And you could argue that's because they always did it in cooperation with free enterprise. And I, I read something recently interesting about the, uh, the Scandinavian model is actually very high personal taxes and very low corporate taxes. Um, so, so they actually have much lower corporate taxes than America, which, um, you know, despite America allegedly being the best place to build a business, it's not necessarily. It really depends on so many factors in each industry. But, well, to tie it back to immigration, Scandinavia is a great case study of what happens when you have a really wealthy country with a really strong safety net and you let in too many immigrants. Because um, they, they've had some really devastating social problems because of letting in too many, um, uh, well, some people claim that they've had terrible social problems because of letting in too many immigrants from uh, particularly Syria. And I, I don't know how to speak to it totally, but I would have to say there must be two sides to that issue. And that letting all 10 million Syrian refugees into a Scandinavian country of 3 million rich Danes or Swedes or however, I don't think there's that many, 8 million Swedes. But uh, there must be a limit to how many they could take in, no matter how well-meaning they are, before it starts to create devastating problems. Well, that's back to what I said before. You, what, you, you can kind of either, you can either have open borders or a strong welfare state, right? The, the social issues that you're alluding to are in part, I mean, part of it is because a lot of those Syrians are, refugees are kind of, fundamentalist Muslims that that believe that it's their job and right to kind of remake wherever they land into a Islamic utopia. Um, I'm utopia. Um, but, right, or, or, or they just don't know how to relate to women and harass them in the street. You know, there, there's a lot of... Well, that's all, that that's part of the, that, I mean, that's what they're learning from their clerics, Right. Some people would say it's a much deeper cultural problem, but yeah, I mean. Oh, of course, of course. Well, let's contrast yeah. for a second. Let's contrast for a second with a, 
America from like. But that's the lesson. That was a less interesting part of what I was saying. The other piece of what I was saying is less about that. And let's 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 ignore Islam for a second. Let's say we let in, um, you know, three million Hispanics into into Scandinavia with atheists or whatever, right? Of non no skin color whatsoever. Um, you would still have a problem because your your system is built on a specific level. They've reached an equilibrium where they they have a certain level of taxation, a certain level of government spending in a society that's relatively <clears throat> homogeneous, and that works. And so, is it possible that they could inculcate another fifty percent growth in their population? Yes, but it would probably take time for them to reach that equilibrium and balance, and it's going to throw their budgets and their and their economy into disarray in the interim. Now that might end up net net positive for that society, depending on the kind of work work ethics of the migrants, right? But it's not something that you can just say, "Oh, any day you want, we'll just take a fifty percent increase in population with our wonderful social welfare state." That's fair. I mean, I actually that's a really interesting thing is, is is sort of the net positive or net negative of letting a lot of immigrants in, like in very different ways. So, so Israel is, is, is comparable to Scandinavia in many ways. It has a very similar healthcare system and fairly generous welfare state and extremely high taxes, partly because of the need for a very uh, high outlay for defense. Un unlike Sweden, we're surrounded by enemies. So it's, it's not as rich as the Scandinavian countries, but it has a high end of companies and high tech. Debt. Well, okay, so actually let's back it up. It didn't have the high tech. In 1990 to Israel let in, I think, a quarter of its population worth. It upped its population by 25%, letting in um, immigrants from the former Soviet Union, um, about three quarters of whom were halakhically Jewish, um, and I think a quarter of whom had at least one Jewish grandparent but weren't necessarily Jewish, either by their own definition or anyone else's. It's just that they could get out of the former Soviet Union. But culturally, they were deeply traumatized by the Soviet Union, and nobody had any idea whether they would become a net positive or negative in Israel. Um, and initially, for sure, everyone thought it'd be just this tremendous, tremendous drain on Israel's national resources. But what wound up happening is that there was this, this tremendous concentration of technical knowledge and highly educated people among the Russian immigrants, and they played a tremendous part in turning Israel into a tech boom country. Um, Although plenty of them just came into jobs in the Israeli bureaucracy and gummed up the works for the rest of us, but in net, I think by any by any rational measure, uh, the Soviets, the former Soviet Jews who come to Israel, have helped Israeli economy grow dramatically since since the early nineties. Um, and then in a completely opposite, America was not a welfare state in eighteen eighty. It was kind of a giant chaotic mishmash, and I think the national budget was less than one percent of GDP. I, 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 yeah, like the national government budget, I should say, was like a tiny, tiny percentage of America's GDP, and I think forty percent of the American national budget was just the, the, the post office. And in that time, there was no no um, restrictions on immigration. Um, there was a tremendous amount of just, just flow of immigrants from all over the world into America. Um, and America grew 
in what at that time was, I think, the most unprecedented wave of prosperity and growth and development of any country through the world. Um, so the immigrants clearly had a massive net positive immigrant, you know, impact. Yeah, look, immigrants can have a net positive impact. Once again, it has to do with the work ethic of the immigrants, the people coming in, right? And the, and the, the gearing of the welfare state. And um, I think that in the early 90s in Israel, there was economic troubles at first until they were able to absorb the large amount of immigrants. And that, and that population of immigrants included, like you said, a lot of doctors, for example, and Israel has a, has a generally known as a pretty good social medicine system, right? And so you brought in a 25% increase in your population, but among them, you brought enough kind of enough doctors to kind of deal with that, right? If you you've suddenly brought it, increased your population to 25%, but none of those incoming people were were medical professionals, you'd have strain on your medical on your healthcare system, right? For example. Yeah, um, I think that's it. And I so, that about Cuba too. Is that Cuba is terrible in a lot of other ways, but it always has had a top-rate medical system. And a, a huge way that uh, Venezuela was when Chavez first took over, it wasn't a disaster in Venezuela because at first he didn't screw up with the oil, and it, at first he. He um, imported a lot of Cuban doctors because Cuba had this surplus of extremely competent, well-trained doctors. And so all of a sudden, there was a lot more better medical care all over Venezuela. Um, it was one of the reasons that people sort of gave Chavez more and more power until he, he and his, his groups of people started to abuse that power. But I think there was sort of an initial positive one. Um, that's really interesting about the doctors. Yeah, there was also for sure a lot of software engineers and stuff that came from Russia. But once again, there was on a on a fiscal on a governmental economic fiscal kind of um, basis. I believe that the state of Israel had trouble absorbing that many immigrants um, at, for a few years until they managed to kind of work it through. And I think that a piece of it was. Like you said, there was a fair number of, it was not just a homogeneous mob of unskilled individuals that just showed up. There were all kinds of people that came in there. There were software engineers, there were mathematicians, there were doctors, there were, you know, professionals of all stripes and just straight laborers as well. Um, and so that, um, and that helped. So, this, so maybe that points towards maybe an answer to part of the problem was that there was a point at which that immigration to Israel, people thought it was going to sort of wind up badly. Um, and it, it turned out to wind up positively. One of the big reasons why is that a tremendous amount of those former Soviet Union Jews who were very, very far from any identity with Jews in the rest of the world had very few of the cultural practices left. They'd been forbidden from practicing anything remotely Jewish for 70 years. Um, but what wound up happening after moving to Israel is that they sort of positively assimilated into Israeli And, um, you, you know, compared to what it was, even when I first arrived in Israel in the early 2000s, 
Um, the Russians are dramatically more integrated and assimilated and have made their imprint, but they, they don't remain as some sort of, you know, separate enclave of people who refuse to integrate into Israeli society. Their children are growing up very Israeli. Um, they might know Russian. They might have forgotten half the Russian by the time they're 20. But they, they, they assimilated into Israeli society in a way that Syrian Muslims who moved to Sweden are not assimilating. Moroccan, Moroccan Arab, you know, who moved to France are not assimilating into France, some of them, enough to be a problem. Um, and, and, you know, when you look at America and the miracle that was America 150 years ago was that it took incredibly heterogeneous populations of Irish and Italians and Slavs and Jews and, 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 and Poles and, and Germans and assimilated them all into America. It, it, and it worked, you know. America didn't didn't become a a, a warring place of, of of separate ethnic enclaves. It, it became, you know, a mosaic, a melting pot, whatever the hell you want to call it. But I think some of these other places, when you have waves of immigration, it does create separatism and resistance. And I, I don't know what the difference is, but there's some big difference. I mean, it, prob it, it probably has to do with the character of those emigrating. But I, I think the back to kind of the United States and how to deal with it, I don't think that, like I said, I don't think that anybody really um, wants to deny entrance to refugees, for example. Uh, I think that we need to have a process by which you verify somebody actually being a bona fide refugee and not just, hey, I want to move to that place because it sounds like fun. Um, or I'll have better economic opportunities. And I think in America in the 1850s and on during the early waves of immigration in America, the reason it worked was because it, it was like, yeah, go ahead. You want to come in here, do something. You want to go, you want to do something, you want to build something, go right ahead. We welcome everybody who wants to come and do and build. And I think that in America probably still wants to do that. Um, the issues come up once again of what does our welfare state look like? And does that have the ability to take on more people? I mean, I think that we should have, you know, other than refugees who are literally kind of, who are literally kind of running for their lives. I think you can give people access to coming into this country, we need immigrants. At the end of the day, I mean, we're facing population decline. I mean, all over the world, there's a lot of, you know, population decline happening in the, in the wealthier countries and wealthier countries require immigrants. And so as long as you're letting in, you know, people that have a good solid work ethic and want to come and work and do build and do great things, then I think we should let more and more people. In. But I think that should be, a, that should be through a process. We should be making sure that the people that we're letting in are not largely going to be a burden on society, that they're going to be net positive to society. Well, in the 1880s, I don't think we had any. Oh, they had nothing, uh, right? Litmus test. No, but we didn't have a litmus test. But just several factors made it. Look, I'm sure some of those immigrant populations from different places around the world weren't coming with some tremendous work ethic. They just were coming because their life sucked where they were, which isn't that different from 
when you pass um, when you pass through Ellis Island, they would ask you what your occupation was, and there were certain occupations that were favored. I remember hearing from my grandfather about his grandfather when they came in. The Jews in, ahead in line said, "Tell them you're a farmer. They're letting farmers in." I think you're thinking of the 1920s, though. Up until the 1920s, it was. It could be the 1920s. That could be the 1920s. You're correct. But once again, in, in those eras, there was also no welfare state. There was no such thing as a quote a burden on society. So what are you going to do? Right. My great grandfather, the one I was named for, he, um, he um, in the 1920s, well, he came over at 12 years old alone, um, worked in the fur industry on a debt for the steamship fare. Every week he would pay a dollar of his $5 salary to pay back his debt to the steamship company. Then he kept putting in a dollar a week and paid for all nine of his brothers and his two sisters and his parents to come to America. And that was in, he moved to America in 1902. Um, and after he brought his whole family to America, in the 1920s when they made, they changed the rules, if you were going to emigrate to America, you had to have someone sponsor you and guarantee to basically support you for that first year. And you needed to prove some sort of occupation. So he sponsored a couple dozen more Jews to come over to America in the 1920s when the rules did change. Um, so I, I'm kind of fascinated by the unlimited immigration as an ideal. Um, because of what it meant for America in, in that time, I think it was a tremendous engine of growth and also very little social welfare state. I mean, there certainly were soup kitchens and stuff like that. There was never zero social welfare state, you know, and even before there was any kind of healthcare, blah, 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 you know, doctors have always taken Hippocratic oath. They do treat people. Hospitals have always treated people. Almost all hospitals have been at least religious organizations or whatever. They treat people without asking whether you have money. So there was always some degree of social safety net. Um, but uh, I want to try But these days it makes up a huge, these days it makes up a huge proportion of our discretionary budget. I was like, Well, it's also, look, the world has changed physically in the sense of transportation. If America suddenly has the same rules of immigration that it had in 1890, but with today's transportation, I don't know, it would take maybe two or three days for the population of America to double. It wouldn't surprise me if 300 million people moved to America as quickly as airplanes could be charged. You know, like every, you know, there'd be 100 million people from India, China, Philippines, Guatemala. I mean, how um, many people went to this, America? It was just suddenly when we're completely thrown open to me. All three of their cars so, are Why, though? Uh, like, well, like, what is it about America? What is it about America that has inspires people around the world to want to come and live here? And maybe we should pack up all the people that don't think America is a, is a great country and has something to offer and send them off to those other places and then let all the other people come in. And then I think things would work out a lot better. Well, the irony here is that I- Obviously joking, by the way. No, 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 it, it's a valid point. It was part of my thinking. When I left America, 
I was saying, and I wasn't entirely joking, I, I am leaving America to go back to my homeland, and I want to leave America for the American Indians. It's theirs, and everybody else who's bitching about America should leave. And I did. So I feel like I put my money where my mouth is at. I moved back to my tribal homeland, and I do. I No, I'm not joking. You were joking, and I'm not joking. If those people really are serious, that they believe it's a colonist enterprise, then leave. Leave. Go back to wherever the hell it is you think you came from. You know? I, I mean, if that's your ideal, you should live out your ideal. And I, I am in favor of people trying to live out that ideal. I, I obviously don't fully believe that America is a pure colonialist enterprise. I studied American Indians. I studied that period. And 95% of the American Indians dying was because of God. It was because of disease. The Europeans did not control it. They didn't do it on purpose. When Europeans arrived in West Africa, Europeans died. 95% of Europeans died who tried to land and live in Western Africa in the 1700s. They had to live on tiny little islands off the coast and just pay people to go do trade and, and buy slaves because the, 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 the immunity went the other way. So don't tell me that it's just some pure colonialist enterprise. It just, it's not that simple. And it's just, it's, it's, it's intellectually dishonest to, 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 to frame it that way. Oh, yes. Well, nothing is quote unquote that simple, right? Everything is complicated. And uh, I think that's kind of a, where we might want to leave it. Anything else in kind of in closing? Your units? No, I think that was a good, I mean, it's interesting because I think we wound up agreeing on some of these points, but not because we agreed on the underlying principle, which was interesting. I think there was a couple. I mean, I kind of want to explore with you because I know you have more of a libertarian bent. You know, maybe another conversation about what it would be like to, to get rid of the assumption that we have to have nation states with borders. What happens if we really do have a purely free movement of labor globally? What does that wind up looking like? Um, I mean, I think that I think that could be kind of an interesting an interesting thought experiment, and I'd, I'd be happy to engage in it on another another occasion. I have to, I have to move on for this morning, but uh, no, this is I, I think a, a good conversation. Um, but I think more of what you I believe, and this is I think what we're doing here in general that most people, when they come together and have a conversation, can find common ground and agreement, even if they disagree on certain, even first principles. And so this is about, this is about this whole project that you and I are kind of going on, even though we have a lot of um, political differences and we, and we disagree on certain, some very, very key first principles. Um, we find a lot of place for agreement. Yeah. And I think that if more people would engage in those conversations and stop looking at the world in the left, right, red, blue, you know, binary kind of view of the world, that we'd have better, <clears throat> we would do better. And I'm gonna go completely radically in a different direction <clears throat> in, cl in closing, unless you have something else you wanna add afterwards. So I haven't, I didn't read this yet myself, but my wife was kind of describing this to me that, you know, this whole thing is coming out now with the lab leak um, 
hypothesis theory, whatever you want to call it, um, hypothesis um, about the, the, the origins of the coronavirus. And um, Brett Stevens wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times, and there was some other thing, but he was basically saying, and you, it's all in the news coverage that is, it does exist about this. It's like the only reason why we ra roundly shut up this whole thing as it, there's any possibility that this could be coming from, could have escaped from the lab was because Donald Trump said it. And we didn't want, so basically he's, he points out, we let our, we meaning the journalistic community, let their politics get in the way of public good. They saw the world in a binary fashion and refused to see anything else. And so therefore, in order to counter the menace that was Donald Trump, they had to go the other way, which is crazy. And that's the same thing you said earlier about immigration, right? Trump kind of flipped the script on immigration, right? <laughs> he took the, the pro-immigration party and made them anti-immigration. The anti-immigration party made them pro-immigration. And just because of the, the binary nature, if one side stakes out a position in, 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 one, in space A, the other side automatically opposes that and and wants negative a and so and we need to i think move beyond that as a as a people and as a society and only by all of the people a lot of people recognizing that we can disagree but still find very broad spots that we can agree on is the path forward yeah i agree and i, I mean i think i'm coming into a, a way of seeing that the the partisan, the knee-jerk partisan reaction is more of an existential threat to us than either of the one sides gaining control. Because it's making us literally stupid about matters of life and death, like the coronavirus thing, like immigration. Like if, we, if, if, if we're so focused on arguing with the other side, then we can't even have a conversation about reality. And I, I will actually disagree with you on that. Uh, because I think the only thing worse than the partisan gridlock that we have um, would be one party rule in either side. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe that's fair. <laughs> well, I, I think regardless of whether it's one party rule, two party rule, I, I think we need to be actually having conversations about reality and the problems in reality. If we can't do that, then I'm not sure it makes any difference and we might run ourselves off the cliff. I don't know if that's a way of agreeing or Agreeing with you. Yeah. All right. We are the authors of. <laughs> we are the authors of. I do not think that word means what you think it means. The short handbook of misunderstanding. Um, so please join us again. We try to do this about every week. Um, occasionally we pop up on Clubhouse as well. And um, we're really happy to uh, have any of your feedback. Put it in in our, our YouTube or our Facebook Live or our, um, our uh, Spotify or anywhere else you find us. All right. Have a good one. Have a good one.